house once knew his children This old house once knew his wife This old house was home and comfort As they fought the storms of life This old house once rang with laughter This old house heard many shouts Now he trembles in the darkness When the lightning walks about Ain't you gonna need this house no longer Ain't you gonna need this house no more Ain't got time to fix the shingles Ain't got time to fix the floor Ain't got time to oil the hinges Nor to mend the window pane Ain't gonna need this house no longer He's getting ready to meet the saints Hey everybody, this is Reggie You're listening to Reggie's Comic Stories Episode number 10 You can find me every other Wednesday on ChrisandReggie.com That would be opposite Chris's show Chris is an infinite earth that he does on the other Wednesdays that I don't do a show, uh, subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. So a lot of you know right now I am in the process of uh, moving from New York City, where I've lived my entire life, to uh, Salem, Massachusetts. And uh, it's a process where I'm preparing my apartment for sale, and uh, also we have to get an apartment up there, my wife and myself, and going to have to get a vehicle, and there are even there are other things even beyond that going on uh, in our lives right now. All good things, but uh, there's a great volume of them. So, uh, but I said a couple of weeks ago when I when I brought this up that you know I had I had already had planned out a lot of the episodes of uh, Reggie's comic stories going forward. So don't worry, everything's going to be great. Uh, I'm going to try my best to uh, you know find the time, get make sure I can get all these shows in that. Uh, we want to make get done every month, uh, and then I had to go and pack almost every book that I own so I can stage my apartment. It's all sitting in a storage locker somewhere. I'm gonna not disclose that location in case anybody is has the wherewithal to go find out the amazing store of uh, graphic novel and uh, comics history books. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of left me. Uh, feel a little stupid, but that's okay. I don't want anyone to. I don't want. I don't want this to be a bummer, or for you to think that this is somehow getting short shrifted in any way. Uh, you know, I have a, a great episode today, which actually um, kind of grew out of a book that I read. It was called uh, "Cartoon County: My Father and His Friends in the Golden Age of Make Believe," by uh, for published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. In 2017, uh, that guy, the author's name is Colin Murphy, and uh, on August 3rd, 2017, he did a article in Vanity Fair, uh, pretty much promoting the book, but really kind of encapsulating the book uh, and some of the best parts of it. Uh, what it's about, and and they can explain it right here, is that uh, when he was a child, he was the son of an illustrator, of a cartoonist, and lived in an area of Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh, that had a lot of illustrators nearby and kind of a, painted a little different of a childhood than I think a lot of us may have had. Or maybe not, I have no idea. Maybe you had a childhood where your father was you know, around working from home, uh, in which case this a lot of this might resonate with you. But anyway, it's called When Fairfield County Was the Comic Strip Capital of the World. And... Uh, a little blurb here tries to explain what's going on. It says, from the 1950s through the 90s, uh, Fairfield County, Connecticut, was home to many of America's best cartoonists and illustrators, the men responsible for Beetle Bailey, Little Orphan Annie, Hagar the Horrible, and countless other comic strips. Uh, the author, whose father drew Prince Valiant, remembers their eccentric subculture. 
and he begins. My father's drawing board, tilted to its customary steep diagonal, stands across the room from where I write. Above it hangs some of his paintings, sketches, and comic strips, along with work by other cartoonists and illustrators who were among his friends. The surface of the drawing board is five feet long and three feet high, and a polished declivity on the cross brace marks where my father rested his right foot as he sat and drew. Every square inch of the oaken face is covered with flicks and curls of paint or ink, creating an inadvertent pattern as intricate as a pollock. That surface was the product of almost 60 years, from the late 1940s until my father's death in 2004. And if you had a sort of cinematic omniscience, you could connect each daub of ink and stroke of color to a moment of life in a vanished world. I grew up in an unusual environment, not only the child of a cartoonist and illustrator, but among a network of families where everyone's father was a cartoonist or illustrator. The place was Fairfield County, Connecticut. In the peak years of the American century, for reasons I'll come to, it was where most of the country's comic strip artists, gag cartoonists, and magazine illustrators chose to make their home. The group must have numbered a hundred or more, and it constituted an all-embracing subculture. Its members sometimes referred to themselves as the Connecticut School, with the good-natured self-mockery that betrays an element of seriousness. In the conventional telling, the milieu of Wilton and Westport, Greenwich and Darien was the natural habitat of the man in the gray flannel suit, and I was certainly aware of the commuters who took the train into Manhattan every morning from my hometown of Cos Cobb. But for me, those salary men with their briefcases seemed like outlandish outliers. To my seven siblings and me, and so many others we knew, normal was something else entirely. Normal was coming home from school and finding a father who had done nothing but draw pictures all day while watching Million Dollar Movie on TV. He might not have changed his rumpled clothes since rolling out of bed. And yes, that could be a piece of rope holding up his trousers. He may have played a round of golf or enjoyed a long lunch with some of his other artist friends. So when you visited his studio after school, you would perhaps have to wake him from a nap. Or he might be posing for himself in front of a Polaroid, plunger in hand to snap the picture from a distance. Maybe wearing a dress and wig, experimenting with drapery and composition. Maybe yelling after the electrician to please come back. It wasn't what it seemed. Normal meant appreciating the difference between plate and vellum finishes on three-ply Bristol board. The one smooth as glass, the other slightly textured. It meant understanding that a Hunt number 102 pen nib was good for ordinary lines, but that a Gillet number 170 was best for lettering. It meant thinking of Bigfoot as an aesthetic category, not a biological one. It meant knowing that the cartoon starbursts that convey intoxication are called squeens, and the wavy lines that convey aroma are called wafterons. At some point in the mid-1960s, Mort Walker, the creator of Beetle Bailey, and Jerry Dumas, who with Walker produced Sam's Strip and Sam and Silo, drew an aerial map of Fairfield County and wrote in the names of the cartoonists who lived there, quickly running out of room. Westport had a large cluster, Bud Sagendorf, who did Popeye, Leonard Starr, who did On Stage and Little Orphan Annie, Dick Wingert, who did Hubert, Stan Drake, who did a strip called The Heart of Juliet Jones and Blondie, uh, Jack Tippett did a strip called Amy, John Prentice did Rip Kirby, and Mel Casson did Mixed Singles Slash Boomer. 
a strip I've never heard of. Uh, the great illustrator Bernie Fuchs was in Westport, too. Imagine, my father would say, if Degas had worked for McCann Erickson in Sports Illustrated. Fuchs' career was all the more remarkable because he had lost three fingers on his drawing hand in an accident when he was a teenager. Dick Hodgins, Henry, Whitney, Darrell Jr., a New Yorker mainstay, and Dick Brown, who drew High and Lois with Walker and his own Hagar the Horrible by himself, lived in Wilton. Stamford was home to Ernie Bushmiller, who drew Nancy, a feature so stripped down and elemental that academic theorists can't let it alone. Dick Cavalli drew Winthrop, and Noel Sickles, whose work included the original drawings for Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea, as well as the comic strip Scorchy Smith. They lived in New Canaan. So did Chuck Saxon. Saxon was the John Cheever of gag cartoonists whose evocations of self-satisfied but oblivious suburban grandees yielded 92 covers and 725 cartoons for the New Yorker. Up in the Ridgefield area were the gag cartoonists Orlando Bucino, Joe Farris, and Jerry Marcus, who created the syndicated strip Trudy. Jim Flora, another illustrator, lived in an enclave tethered to Rowayton. His edgy, angular confections... Think of the album covers for any jazz artist in the 50s and early 60s. Epitomized the era's graphic sensibility of high-end hip. Also in row 18 was Crockett Johnson, the comic strip Barnaby, and the children's classic Harold and the Purple Crayon, that was his stuff. And Greenwich was home to Mort Walker and Jerry Dumas. Also to Tony DiPreta, who did Joe Palooka's strip. The political cartoonists Renan Lurie and John Fischetti, and my father, who drew Big Ben Bolt and Prince Valiant. This is just a sampling and leaves scores of people out. And I'm cutting in scores of people. Anyway, uh, that was a lot of places in Connecticut, if that wasn't clear. New Canaan, Rowayton, these are all neighborhoods in Connecticut, uh, really clustered in, around kind of the, uh, I don't know, middle southern area. But if that wasn't weird, if he, there was a word in there you didn't understand, it was likely a uh, neighborhood, a town in Connecticut, or uh, it was maybe someone's name. Anyway, he continues, the surge into Fairfield County was mainly a product of the post-war years and had been driven by the age-old forces of money and geography. First, the artists had, and cartoonists needed to be close to New York City. That's where the magazines and book publishers and comic strip syndicates were based. And in an age before scanners or fax machines, physical proximity was essential. The gag cartoonists had to make weekly rounds in Midtown to sell their work to magazines. As for the comic strip artists, they were always running late and often needed to deliver finished work in person. There are many ways of being close to Manhattan. You can actually live there, or, for example, you can live in the suburbs of New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut. This is where money came into play. Alone among the three states, Connecticut had no state income tax. Get yourself east of the New York state line and you would enjoy a tax holiday, with Manhattan only about an hour away by train. There was a third factor. Even before the war, a few pioneers had begun to form a nucleus. In the first decades of the 20th century, as comic strips and magazine illustration became a big business, artists began migrating out of Manhattan for the comparatively rustic precincts of Westchester County. The illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, best known for the Arrow Collar Man, had a home in New Rochelle, and so did Norman Rockwell. 
My father had the luck to grow up next door to Rockwell, modeled for him as a boy, and trained with him as a journeyman illustrator. As Westchester grew more crowded, Fairfield County was a logical next step. The county's contemporary image is hard to escape, but the region was a very different place before the era of arbitrage and hedge funds. To be sure, there were old estates along the waterfront and in the back country, and artists and writers had been putting down roots in the hinterland for decades. But there were still working farms, and towns like Greenwich and Norwalk had big middle class of plumbers and shopkeepers, and teachers who could afford to buy homes and had a firm hold on the levers of local power. Greenwich Avenue, now lined with Ralph Lauren and Gucci, back then more closely resembled, resembled a prosperous Main Street in Ohio or Michigan. Cartoonists and illustrators didn't earn fortunes and didn't need to. For our Adams family style house in Cos Cobb, purchased in 1953, my parents paid $26,000. My father's weekly checks from King Features Syndicate would be left on the dining room table for my mother to deposit, so I know that his comic strip income in 1960 was about $25,000. This was for a strip called Big Ben Bolt, about a Boston Brahmin prize fighter, which appeared in about 250 newspapers, more or less average at the time, and was written by Elliot Kaplan, who also wrote The Heart of Juliet Jones, a strip. The brother of the irascible Al Cap, who drew, wrote and drew Lil Abner, uh, only a very few strips, such as Blondie, Beetle Bailey, and Peanuts, surpassed the thousand newspaper mark. By the time I was old enough for childhood memories, Fairfield County was fully stocked with cartoonists. What I know about the origins of the Connecticut school would come gradually in the form of backfill. Most of the cartoonists were military veterans, and many, like Gil Fox, Dick Wingert, and Bill Keane, had drawn during the war for the military newspapers Yank and Stars and Stripes. Dick Brown, after a year studying art at Cooper Union, had gone to work for the New York Journal-American as a copyboy. He remembered walking into the newsroom for the first time, looking for a job. Bleary reporters pecked at ancient typewriters. Editors hurled obscenities. Smoke rose in thunderheads. The city editor took a cigar from his mouth and appraised the kid in front of him. What do you want, he asked, and Dick, taking him in his surroundings, said, I want it all. He eventually wound up at Johnstone and Cushing, an advertising agency that specialized in cartoon-style ad campaigns, the kind now enjoying an ironic retro second life, and was a hothouse for a gag and comic strips cartoonists. Leonard Starr, Stan Drake, and Gil Fox all got their start there, as did the comic book master Neil Adams. Another hothouse existed in the production departments of the newspaper syndicates, known as bullpens, which prepared all the incoming original artwork for reproduction. The syndicates, such as King Features and the Newspaper Enterprise Association, had a lot of leverage. To get a comic strip off the ground, you needed syndicate backing. Sometimes the syndicates owned the strip in whole or in part, and they had rules. You could draw a girl in a bikini, but you couldn't show a navel, even on children. And for years, the bullpen took an exacto knife to the offending swiggles, until Mort Walker began retaliating by drawing extra navels on his characters and gratuitously adding crates of navel oranges into the storyline. The depiction of male nipples was also forbidden, which presented a challenge for strips about prize fighters, cavemen, or barbarians. Another taboo for some reason, showing dirty stocks on a chair. 
Ernie Bushmiller, a bullpen veteran, remembered having a list of 35 no's. After launching a comic strip, most cartoonists stopped creating gags for magazines. For some, though, gag cartooning was an entire career. In the middle of every week, the gag cartoonists would take an early train into Manhattan for a look day, usually Wednesday, at the New Yorker, the Saturday Evening Post, Esquire, Playboy, Argosy, Collier's, True, and a dozen other magazines, visited in descending order of generosity. Cartoon editors would flip through portfolios of penciled roughs, maybe selecting one or two to think about. The cartoonists would make their morning rounds, meet for lunch at the Blue Ribbon on West 44th Street, continue their rounds in the afternoon, then meet for drinks at Costello's on 3rd, the bar where Hemingway supposedly broke John O'Hara's cane over his own head. As individuals, the cartoonists and illustrators were as different as any group of people can be. Some, like Milton Kniff or my father, were warm and courtly. Some, like Walt Kelly, who did Pogo, performed frequently in public, but were also complicated in private. Charles Schultz was famously shy. Taken as a whole, there was a tilt toward the gregarious. They all shared one thing, not so much a characteristic as a condition. The work was solitary. Sheets of heavy white Strathmore, India ink, pencils and pens, sable brushes, kneaded erasers, and themselves. Every cartoonist bore a hard callus on the distal interphalangeal joint of his middle finger, of his drawing hand. Nothing about the craft had really changed since the Gilded Age, until the arrival of electric erasers and their dental whirr. Only a few of the artists had regular partners or assistants. Mort Walker was one of these. He ran what seemed by comic strip standards to be a mini-empire, a titan's workshop of a cartooning enterprise, but it was only half a dozen people. For the most part, work consisted of a man by himself in a room. Studios came in many shapes and sizes, as churches do, though like churches they had common features. The studio of Prince of Valiant's creator, Hal Foster, in Reading, was a baronial room centered on a two-story leaded glass window in Gothic style, befitting his subject matter. Chuck Saxon worked in a cramped loft above his garage in New Canaan. The studio received little natural light, in which Saxon's case didn't matter much. Like Stan Drake, he worked mostly at night. Mort Walker eventually moved from Greenwich into a cavernous stone studio in Stamford built by Gutson Borglum, the man who designed and sculpted Mount Rushmore. But Dick Brown and Wilton worked out of his basement, surrounded by washtubs and laundry hanging on clotheslines, a workspace version of himself. The writer Haywood Brown was commonly likened to an unmade bed. Jerry Dumas likened Brown to an unmade Haywood Brown. That's Dick Brown to an unmade Haywood Brown. Uh, a few cartoonists, such as Stan Drake and John Prentice, uh, rented rooms above shops in the commercial areas of Westport or New Canaan, but most worked at home. Brian Walker, Mort's son, remembers going to a friend's house after school one day and asking, Where's your dad? He's at work. What do you mean? He's in New York. It was Brian's first inkling that having your father in the house all day was not a typical arrangement. My own father worked on the third floor of a mansard roof Victorian until the annual harvest of new family members made the house too crowded. He went on the daytime TV game show Tic Tac Doe in 1958, won $5,800, and built a studio at the rear of the property. 
One defining reality about the cartoonists was that although their characters, Beetle Bailey, Snoopy, Prince Valiant, Blondie, were known worldwide, they themselves passed through life more or less anonymously. Unlike actors or sports figures or reality TV stars, they were never stopped on the street. They didn't have a gal to protect them or people to speak for them. Semi-domesticated, they depended heavily on their families, especially wives who in many ways held the entire enterprise together, from basic finances to rudimentary social cues. Joan Brown would say XYZ to Dick whenever he emerged from the bathroom. Examine your zipper. Life was interrupted mainly by mundane chores. More than a few collectors have brought original comic strips and found notations like Prescription Ready or Diapers, Baloney, Chesterfields in the margins. The working environment of the studio was a private place that tended to take on the idiosyncrasies of the occupant. There was always a lot of headgear strewn about. Mort Walker kept his own old army helmet on a shelf, and on the wall hung a map of the United States with pins for all the papers that published Beetle. Dick Brown sometimes wore a paper mache Viking helmet made by one of his sons, and he looked like Hagar even without the helmet. Those who drew dramatic strips like Rip Kirby or Brenda Starr, as opposed to the humorous Bigfoot strips like Hagar and Barney Google, generally kept a lot of costumes around, along with filing cabinets full of scrap, pictures torn from magazines of cars, horses, swords, Arabs, sportsmen, guns, swank apartments, and memorable faces like Auden, Arendt, Dirksen, or Hepburn, or extreme states of emotion, anger, agony, insanity, sorrow. To capture specific poses of people in action, my father bought a Polaroid land camera in 1949, the sole instance in his life when he was an early adopter. He took thousands of pictures of himself, his family, and any neighbor you'd look twice at, directing each tableau like a backyard auteur. That's not happy, he'd say. I want to see happy. Let's do it again. Happy! There was a common smell to the studios. A parfumeur could identify traces of wood and graphite particulate, from pencils being sharpened by hand with razor blades and brought to a point by abrasion on fine sandpaper. Notes of resin and paint, the lingering residue of some form of tobacco, and hints of spilled scotch. Over time, the studios seemed to harden around their occupants, like a carapace. There's a well-known Ed Corrin cartoon in which one of his fuzzy characters stands at the center of a throng of admirers. The caption reads, We were wondering where you get your ideas. The New Yorker cartoonist Misha Richter came by our house one day and saw an antique shaving stand in the corner of the living room, a marble-topped set of mahogany drawers on a tall base, surmounted by an over-mirror. He had a sight gag within seconds, a man standing in front of it using an electric razor. Cartoonists were not funny all the time. Mort Walker, shrewd and dryly hilarious as a writer, was mainly straightforward in conversation, though he had his moments. When another cartoonist told him about an unfortunate experience with the accounting firm Ernst & Ernst, Mort replied, Well, Ernst is okay, but Ernst is a crook. Though his formal schooling ended after that one year at Cooper Union, Dick Brown was a man of parts. For one thing, he could draw cartoons while looking at you and talking. He once offered this de definition of philosophy, looking for a black cat in a dark room where there is no cat. 
As for religion, he said, it's when you think you have found the cat. If Brown was Socrates, Jerry Dumas played the role of Baudrillard or Foucault. His for short-lived Sam strip was a self-referential homage to comic technique and the great strips of the past. Its characters knew they were in a strip, sometimes second-guessed their creator, and invited characters from other strips into their space. In one strip early on, Sam thumbs through a phone book looking for a new artist and writer. Nowadays, we'd call this metatextual. Back then, it meant not many pins in the map. When cartoonists broke free of the studio, it was like a release from school. Socializing was intense. Once a month, there would be a meeting of the National Cartoonist Society at the Lambs Club in New York. 150 people or more in attendance. Cocktail parties were a major outlet. None of the Noel Coward variety, but squeen-heavy gatherings were 50 or 60, where Manhattans flowed like Perrier, and teenagers waited until the adults went off to dinner, and then drained the glasses. Drinking was important. It cut short some careers and, as assistants stepped in, allowed others to start. Golf was almost universal, as was the inability to play it very well. To this day, the names of the cartoonist home courses evoke an entire world. If the cartoonist had christened weekends the way the Jacobins christened months, time would tick by in a succession of euphonious fairways. Silvermine, Millbrook, Burning Tree, Rock Crimin, Stanwich. Collectively, the cartoonists possess great convening power, to a degree that is hard to imagine in a world with so many media distractions. The Hearst newspapers once conducted an experiment, sending out Sunday editions with a section missing to 1,000 randomly selected subscribers. One week, the main news section would be left out, then the magazine supplement, then the color comics. Only 45 of 1,000 people complained about the missing news section. 880 complained about the missing comics. Comics had cachet. Aside from the annual dinner to bestow the Rubin Award, cartooning's highest honor, named for Rube Goldberg. The biggest cartoonist event of the year was Sports Night, which took over the ballroom of the Commodore Hotel, and the great sports figures of the day would be out in force for drinks and dinner. Politicians showed up, too. To autograph hunting kids, the experience was like setting out to trap squirrels and coming home with the Bronx Zoo. Jack Dempsey was almost always present, massive liver-spotted hands resting atop the curve of a cane, his handwriting was delicate and beautiful, like a nun's. Casey Stengel was usually in attendance. Once when I was ten or so, and he was in his seventies and managing the Woeful Mets, I introduced myself to him and he said, Murphy, Murphy, I know a Murphy in San Diego. Pause. Are you him? The cartoonist would summon the immortals, one by one, onto the stage. Tunney, Barra, Gifford, and draw caricatures on the spot then give away the drawings. In boxes at my home, I keep hundreds of the old Polaroids that my father took of himself, a photographic record as prodigious as that for any president, though pictures of Eisenhower and Kennedy using a garbage can lint as a shield or delivering a right hook to a floor lamp are rare. My father is in his mid-30s when the pictures start. He's in his mid-80s when they stop. His hair thins and whitens. A beard appears. The exaggerated facial posturing, happy, never really changes. 
but the trim former army officer slowly morphs into Don Quixote. The concentration of cartoon talent in Fairfield County was a product of special circumstances, and those circumstances have disappeared. Newspaper comic strips are not the force they were, and a few magazines still publish gag cartoons. The New York City newspaper strike of 1962-63 led to the demise of the Hearst flagship, the New York Journal-American, whose funny pages were the best in the country. Making it there was like opening at the Roxy. Now it was gone. New York remains the center of the publishing industry, but the railroad is no longer a lifeline. The internet has meant that artists can send their work from anywhere. Connecticut has a state income tax now, though that's not what made Fairfield County unaffordable. Wall Street is responsible for that. In the early 1980s, I remember there was a yacht in Greenwich Harbor bearing the name Arbitrage. It was like the ominous moment when the first Western naval steamship appeared at Edo. Most of the cartoonists are gone. Shortly before his death, Jerry Dumas spoke to me about the map of Fairfield County that he and Mort Walker had drawn several decades ago. He still has a copy, he said, but one day years earlier he had looked at it and began putting a red line through the names of those who had died. The county was quickly depopulated and he put the map away. I remember talking with Dick Brown one afternoon in 1979 about Fairfield County and how the Connecticut school was even then winding down. We were having lunch at his house in Wilton. His wife, Joan, was with us and the television was on in the background. Joan suffered from emphysema and moved about the house on a motorized scooter hooked up to a tank of oxygen. For some reason, Dick wanted to change the channel, but every time he used the remote, wielding it clumsily with an arthritic arm, he also caused the seat on the scooter to rise. When Joan used her own controls to fix the seat, the channel would change. For several minutes, the two of them engaged in electronic warfare. When the fun was over, Dick came back to what we had been talking about. He was under no illusions, holding on to no cat. He said, I feel right now the way I used to feel as a kid when the movie was over. The credits would start to roll, the lights would start to come up, and I'd walk slowly backwards up the slanting aisle, watching the screen, just trying to make it last as long as I could. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't really care about Fairfield, Connecticut, but uh, it is too bad what where we are with uh, comic strips these days. Uh, I barely see them myself because I don't get a printed newspaper. I haven't gotten one in a long time. Uh, <clears throat> pardon me. When I go to my in-laws, they get the Washington Post, and that has a pretty good comic section in there. But, the, you know, even from my childhood... Um, which, granted, is now several decades ago, uh, the comics have just shrunk more and more and more. There's just less, there's nothing that can be done in them except to have talking heads passing, uh, you know, punchlines back and forth. And uh, that's more or less where they were when I was a kid, too, but at least they had a little bit of action to them. You could, you know, get a little background going. Now it's just nonstop people standing at a table or really... Hovering over a line And you know they don't sell the uh, comics anymore uh, So I did that episode Of Reggie's Comic Stories about uh, RF Outcult and the Yellow Kid And that's really You know the beginnings of comics Right there and, and back then That's what sold the papers Now I don't think people could give a crap I mean they're still running Peanuts reruns For God's sake and it's like well I mean 
is there not another comic that we can run in that in that spot? Uh, some sort of a Garfield too. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this little uh, trip into there, and, and I hope that um, I did justice to uh, his writing style. Um, if you go check out Colin Murphy's book, Cartoon County, My Father and His Friends in the Golden Age of Make Believe, it's uh, more of the same kind of thing. It's it's more anecdotes, well written stuff. Uh, it's not paperback yet, but I have a feeling, I have a sneaking suspicion. It will become paperback this year, so maybe sit tight on that if you're looking to get it that way. But uh, if not, then uh, I hope that this uh, episode will suffice and that it was interesting enough. And if if you know anyone has questions about what you know Connecticut and its proximity to New York, like it's uh, depending where you are in Connecticut, you can literally be like 30 minutes away from Manhattan. You're right there, so it's uh it really does make sense. It's it's not just cartoonists. Like he said, it's a lot of people that work in New York eventually move to Connecticut. Uh, I would even say of a certain breed. Anyway, uh, if you want to contact me about this show or anything that we do over here at Chris and Reggie, uh, conglomerate company, whatever it is, uh, you can write to me at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We do have a Patreon with three exclusive shows per month. You can hit, look at that at patreon.com slash Chris and Reggie. If you like what we do, chip in five bucks and uh, you'll get some uh, smutty content. Facebook.com slash Cosmic T-Mill History for the Facebook. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill. And I'm at Twitter on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. You can uh, see both of our Chris and my weekly writings reviewing new DC comics at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And he still does daily DC comics reviews at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. Most recently, because he's going back to school, he is going through uh, every issue of Action Comics Weekly on a weekly basis. It's a great exercise. I don't think that this much Action Comics Weekly has been archived on the web, so this is your place to go check it out. Because uh, you definitely don't want to sit and read the damn things We uh, do have a website, chrisandreggie.com That's where you find our archives, our show notes, all the shows in order That's where you want to really be if you want to check out past episodes And while you're there, if you're feeling a little chilly up top Hit the banner for 80stees.com We're partnering with them, and if you buy something, if you like it You buy it and you wear it uh, They get a little smoolah, we get a little cashola and uh, everyone is happy and stuff. So uh, that is all we have for this week. And uh, I think that that's all we got for you. So uh, I'm going to try this and say that's the story. And I'm sticking to it. Well, I'll be your daddy Warbucks if you be my orphan Annie. Buy some pupils for your eyes and some dog biscuits for Sandy. I'll be your dagger bum still If you be my little blondie Work for Mr. Dithers And give you all my money Girl, I feel like a comic strip I feel like a joke I've been spending all my money on you And you love me till I'm broke Got me doing slapstick Can't help myself.